host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Ryan Hanna. Ryan, what's going on, man? Not much, Dmitry. Thanks for having me. Oh, um, my pleasure. Um, also joining us, we're doing a three, three-person show, which I haven't done in a while, so I'm excited to try to navigate these uh, these bumpy waters is is our, our mutual friend, Max Boltman. Max, what's going on, man? Not a lot. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. This is going to be fun. We're going to talk Detroit Red Wings. We decided to reconvene. I think I had you guys on at roughly this time last year as well, and we did a bit of a uh, State of the Union talking about the Red Wings, so excited to get into it. I guess... Ryan, I'll, I'll pitch it to you here. What's the vibe like right now around the team, around people covering it, around the fan base? Because there's a clear sort of improvement this year compared to you know last year and, and basically the three or four years before that in terms of goal differential, in terms of point percentage, all that good stuff. But are people satisfied with like how much of an improvement uh, or how much of a step this team has taken so far this season? Uh, it's it's a good question. Max and I are already laughing. Uh, you know what? The vibe is is definitely not at its highest point right now, uh, but it doesn't mean that the team hasn't improved. Like you mentioned, Dimitri, you can see clearly in their game the ways they've taken a step. Uh, some of that is the players they brought in. Some of that is Derek Lalone and his systems and uh, trying to implement a little bit more of a sustainable uh, risk management style of the hockey game, uh, pretty much teaching this team how to win if and when they have a better roster. Uh, the things that are bringing the vibe down right now, though, are, are some, you know, the Red Wings are approaching the trade deadline. They don't look like a playoff team. That's not likely at all. Um, and then they have two key possible trade pieces who have been out most of the year in Tyler Bertuzzi and Jacob Ferrandna. And for very different reasons, uh, their trade value has either, you know, almost completely evaporated in the case of Jacob Verona or in Tyler Bertuzzi, it's it's a little tenuous. You don't know what Steve Eisenman is going to be able to do. So, and even that, like those are just almost out of uh, anyone's control, uh, but it's all colored with the, this is the uh, Connor Bedard draft here. So Red Wings fans are looking up at the playoffs and that feels out of reach. They're looking down at the draft lottery uh, uh, standing, so to speak, and that seems out of reach. So it feels a little mucky right now. Um, it's kind of hard to see the forest for the trees if you're a Red Wings fan at the moment. Max, there is... Let me translate that. Let me translate that. They are more despaired than they were before because of what you said. Like there is... Almost everyone is worried about something, whether it's the lottery or whether it's, you know, not making the playoff. Like you still have some people who I think are holding a hope for that. But I think like the the general... I forget who it is. Is it... Um, is it evolving hockey or is it hockey viz? Micah Blake McCurdy, who does like the misery rankings, where it's that's like, Micah, yeah, yeah. So that's where that's what it is, right? It's like that they are that's accurate to, to the Red Wings. Is it's being in that middle ground where you're probably going to finish like eleventh or twelfth in the lottery standings, which is like you know four spots out of the playoffs. Uh, I think the despair is is almost. I don't know if it's as high as like the truly terrible 2019-20 season. But it's 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 much higher than it was the last two years. Well, yeah, they're in this weird spot where Dom's prob- playoff probability has them at one percent to make the playoffs right now, but also based on their current standing, they hold a three percent chance at picking first. And it's interesting because I know that you know the Red Wings and Red Wings fans, I'm sure, have a very complicated history with you know relying on the draft lottery and thinking that those odds mean anything in terms of solidifying where they're going to pick, but 
they're in this weird spot where they almost can't afford to to leapfrog anyone else at this point because literally if they move up one more spot in the NHL standings they go down to zero percent in terms of picking first and and that would be almost even more bleak right so right now whether it's Florida whether it's the Islanders whether it's the Predators it feels like those are the three teams that are just ahead of them in in terms of point percentage and they they really can't afford to pass any of those teams but also they're trying to talk themselves into playing getting these like meaningful competitive reps in right like I know you wrote recently about how long it's been since you could even sort of see the path towards the playoffs and how even if they're on the outside looking in they're thinking all right well this is meaningful experience we're getting some of these young players games that matter in February March and and hopefully um, you know that translates into future success or something to build off moving forward but at what cost Totally. I mean, I, I think that's that's a pretty good synopsis of, of where things stand, right? Like you're looking, and I, you know, the Islanders going in and or bad. Like I do think that's going to put them, whether it's the playoffs or not, like solidly ahead of the Red Wings. I think the Panthers are just better. Like they just, I don't know why they're this low anyway. Um, but you, you have those teams like Nashville. Like I don't know, Nashville could go one of two ways in, in the near future here. Ottawa, Philly, St. Louis. Like I think those are all teams. This is like a cluster right now. And in a lot of ways, I think it's a preferable cluster to be in than like the the Columbus Chicago cluster, I guess, like in terms of night to night, you know, watchability. But um, yeah, I I think uh, the I I see the phrase mushy middle in I think every comment section of every story at this point. And that if you want like the the the, the window into the the deep dark fears of the Red Wings fan, that's where that's where it starts. Yeah, that's, that's that's definitely where you don't want to be. Ryan, so the 22nd in point percentage right now, if we're kind of tracking their progress, the year before they were 25th, they were 27th, 31st in 2019-20 when they played at like a 45-point pace before the, the season was shut down. Um, so they've gotten better, and I think you know the mission statement or goal heading into this season for them was to show that clear progression, right? That's why you go out and you commit $75 million to... Ben Sherrod to uh, David Perron to Billy Huso to you know Dominic Kubalik, everyone that they wound up bringing in, and so they have shown that improvement. But I guess it's fair to wonder like whether it was it was enough or whether they feel like it accomplished the job they were trying to accomplish. Right? I think when Eiserman inherited this group in 2019, it was an utter wasteland in terms of assets, and so he did the right thing of just like fully stripping it down. You know, leveraging cap space they had to get extra picks. Um, you know, doing every every trade they could to basically long term wise accumulate as many assets as they could. And that's sort of the easy part in terms of tearing it down and, and doing that. I think it's much more difficult to build it up. And so this really felt like sort of the first the first wave of going in that direction. And I think it's fair to be sort of critical based on the early returns of it at the very least. Yeah, first and foremost, you're completely right. It is fair to be critical. Um, I, I know when those signings were happening, there was a lot of, I mean, excitement for Red Wings fans, but a lot of like kind of nervous excitement. Like, you know, is Ben Schrott worth the four point four times 4.75 or whatever he's making? Um, do you want to commit that many years to cop, et cetera, et cetera? I, I think the reasoning behind why Eisenman did that is he just watched Detroit get caved far too often the, the years prior, you know, to the tune of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 goals plus. And, uh, I know a lot gets made of uh, any one of Weisman's responses, and he'll be the first to tell you don't 
read too much into what I say, but there were a couple times they like ISO cammed him and you could see him grinding his teeth down. And you're like, this guy hates losing. Uh, you you compound that with uh, Lucas Raymond and, and most Sider had phenomenal rookie seasons and he wanted to build structure around uh, what is really going to be the core of that team for the future. So uh, fair to be critical, yes, I, I do get the reasoning. Uh, there's also the financial aspect to this, whether people like to, to talk about it or not. Uh, the Red Wings have a new arena. Uh, the, the NHL is really, uh, coming out of the pandemic, is really geared towards kind of recouping costs or recouping expenses. Uh, they need to put butts in seats. I'm sure that was also within uh, uh, the range of what the Red Wings management or ownership was thinking of when they went out and spent. Um, but then you consider the poor performances of these guys. Yeah, Billy Husso has been uh, great. I think he's come down to earth a little bit. Uh, he's not, you know, playing lights out at the top of all goals saved above expected charts anymore. Um, Kubelik had a really hot run there. I think Peron has been quietly very, very good. Uh, <laughs> you look at the impact for Ben Sherrod on the Red Wings, it's probably... You know, a lot of analytical models will, will tell you it's a net negative. Uh, Cop has been, I, I think, a little bit underappreciated this year considering the course surgery he had, and Max has done a really good job kind of illuminating that and, and writing a little bit more about it. Um, but he hasn't blown the doors wide open. So, fair to be critical of uh, Eisenman's spend? Yeah, definitely. Uh, has it... Are, are, Without those guys, would they be at the bottom of the standings, you know, leading the charge for Bedard? I actually don't think so. I think the Red Wings are more or less close to where they would have been anyways, considering Bertuzzi and Verona have been out all year. Well, I think part of it, too, is they, they you had a new coach, right? Like, you, you make a change to a new coach, and if you don't make some kind of step forward, all of a sudden, like, you really feel like a franchise is just totally spinning its wheels, and, and I guess, let alone take a step back, and then it's like, oh, geez, the old coach wasn't even the problem. So I think they did have to do something this offseason to put Derek Lalonde in a better position than than they had Jeff Blaschel in. And I also think they probably thought like, you know, I'm not, I, I think that the sophomore slump stuff on like Cider and Raymond and like maybe a little overblown at times, but like I think they did probably expect that we're going to be a little better than this, right? And if they are, then those are your big guns, right? Like you see it so often, you, you go as your stars go. And coming into this year, I certainly thought that those guys were going to take that leap to being, you know, Lucas Raymond challenging to be the Red leading scorer and, you know, most cider threatening a couple Norris ballots here or there. And that hasn't happened. So it's, I think that's part of it, it too, as much as anything is like, if, if those guys do take a step and then you, you add in, you know, the insulation that a Perron gives, that a cop gives, um, it's not hard to see that it, the ways that it could have been a little better. But I, I think a lot of it comes back down to knowing you got to put a new coach in a better situation than, than what the previous guy had. Yeah, I think there's also something to certainly, um, you know, creating competitive environments where you can better evaluate your young players and give them a chance to actually succeed, right? Beyond like making the playoffs or whatever, whatever value that can provide moving forward. I think just like not having these bleak, soul-crushing experiences where you're just showing up to the rink and losing five nothing every night and just getting embarrassed. I think that certainly helps. And so I didn't, I didn't mind the the decision to go out and spend money, even if it didn't ultimately move the needle that much moving forward, especially because you basically have this year and next of, you know, your two your two cornerstones in, in Raymond and Sider making on their ELCs less than a million dollars, right? That gives you a yeah. lot of wiggle room to, to kind of take on money up front. I didn't really love like attaching some of the term to some of those deals. I guess that's part of doing business in, in unrestricted free agency. And, and obviously, you know, the Ben Chirot one, we're going to talk more about him when we talk about Sider. That's sort of in its own camp because regardless of term, I think 
I think literally a one year, $1 million deal, I would have been like, I don't really love this for them because I just don't think, I, I don't trust any coach to properly evaluate Ben Sherratt and, and, and use him accordingly. It, it, I guess to Derek Lalonde's credit, eventually after 40 games or so or 35 games, he eventually made the necessary change. But even him, it took him, what, like after the first handful of games, I think anyone watching the Red Wings was like, all right, maybe uh, maybe let's give Mo Sider someone else and see if he can, he can do a little better. And then all of a sudden, we're 30 games in and, and Ben Sherratt's still, still playing with him and still weighing him down. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... <laughs> It was also a little bit of tough timing here because I, I think the other thing that you saw if you watch those first 10 to 15 Red Wings games is Moritz Sider turned the puck over a ton in the first like month of the season. And so like that wasn't Ben Sherratt's fault. Like Sider has played better away from Sherratt. He's also just played better, right? And and that is part of it. I feel a little bad for Sherratt that that's happened. Also, like Philip Peroning starts the year on this crazy heater that I think anyone who's familiar with what shooting percentages are supposed to look like for NHL defensemen and Ade's shooting, like, you know, it, it was never gonna. He was never gonna be a point per game defenseman the whole year, and of course, it times up with uh, Sharak getting moved on to his pair. But you know, I, I asked uh, Derek Alone earlier this week about like, you know, given what Mata and Hironic had done together, like, has he thought about putting those two back together? And he basically said something along the lines of like, yeah, but you know, at that point, then yeah, you know, it's really cutting into Sharak who brings this element, this physical element that they don't have, and so like, it's clear that they still want him on the ice, and I know that. Uh, you look at any, almost any underlying number, at least the ones that we have publicly available. I know the coaches don't don't think our public numbers are always very good, but um, obviously, like the, those tell a story, right? Um, but they still see him as bringing this element that they do not have. They're not wrong that they don't have it. They don't have anyone else who does what he does. Um, but it's just a it's just going to be a kind of an ideological thing, right? Of of how much should that outweigh the other stuff? It sounds like well alone was really saying there, trying to say to you was. I would love to do so, but unfortunately, Steve Eiserman paid this guy a lot of money, and I don't think he would love him playing third pairing minutes. Hey, you know, if you if uh, if that's the read-in, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, I don't know, but that's you know, I'm just telling you what he said. <laughs> so, so Ryan, I would argue, I, I'm sure there's some timing involved. Insider, you know, isn't shouldn't be completely blameless in this. Like he's clearly played better himself. Just watching these games, though, I feel like the dynamic that Wallman has brought to that pairing. We can shift over talking more to them now has helped make life a lot easier for him. Like I think just playing with more skill has really opened up different avenues for him to not have to maybe do as much as he was early in the season. And I know that he he had better results with even like a Danny DeKaiser last season who isn't necessarily the most skilled player in his own right, especially at that point of his career. But I I would argue that I know wowies are sometimes with or without your numbers are sometimes tricky because, you know, they're so contextually based, like who you're playing with might might be differences in terms of quality of competition, where you're being used, what the gate score is, all that stuff. But I feel like the numbers are so jarring in this case, how Sider's produced with with Sherratt at the start of the year, and then now with Wallman since pretty much the start of the new year, that I feel like there is something more to this beyond just, oh, Mo Sider is just playing better. It's a, it's a confluence of so many things. I completely agree with what, uh, with what Max said. Like, Sider was kind of not getting the the blame he deserved at the start of the year like he he was playing poorly uh especially for a few games there uh his game got better i don't think Sherratt was the best fit for him in terms of uh the the stylistic um kind of meshing together of those two guys jake wallman once he came back from injury uh, i believe it was shoulder surgery he had and then shook off the rust which didn't take long for him uh once he made it up to that line and his game emerged, it was like all of those things came to amplify at the exact right time where 
I mean, it, it's it's a good result for a cider, uh, but in terms of evaluating, you know, what's Sherratt's impact at the team, like, I don't think this could have gone worse in terms of, uh, in that aspect, in terms of evaluating how Sherratt kind of fit in. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, I do believe Wallman, to my surprise, I, I, I'll admit, I didn't think that Wallman's uh, kind of puck transporting up the ice, using his legs to to generate offense, kind of to get back on defense. I didn't think that would be the kind of game that'd be compatible with Cider, uh, but it, it's worked out. Those two have really good chemistry. Uh, they move the puck uh, amongst each other really well. Uh, they seem to have some kind of read as to where the other one's going to be on the ice, a little bit more trust. Uh, with Cider, I saw that he struggled with the way kind of Sherratt, um Sherratt's kind of always engaging, always on style of play. I, I didn't think Snyder was able to really um, adapt to that, maybe the way the team they wanted him to. Uh, but that seems to be uh, gone with Wallman. So honestly, a lot of credit to Jake Wallman. Uh, Max has wrote, written about him recently as well. Hey, the emergence of his game cannot be uh, overstated either. So uh, it's, again, it's a confluence of a lot of things that went really right uh, for this wallman Snyder pairing. And I'm not trying to gloss over the 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 Sherrod thing either. Like I, I'm I'm just trying to I was just trying to bring up like it, it was a confluence of things mm-hmm. that probably over uh, dramatized it a little bit. But it, like it is clear what 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 Ryan's saying too, right? It's like the there is a chaos factor, a risk factor to Ben Sherrod being on the ice. That uh, look, I'm sure that that's part of what the coaches. I'm sure the cause of the chaos factor is the thing the coaches like, which is the being on and being so aggressive and chasing everything down. Um, Wallman has tamed the risk in his game, though. To but he still has like these, uh, he's got the size, he's got the maybe not the pure strength or whatever, but but certainly the the skating that Sherrod brings plus some, right? Like it's, uh, you know, he, he does bring these elements that when you take the risk out, like it makes it a really natural fit. I was not, so I wasn't trying to gloss over that, but I was just trying to to highlight that it was simultaneous, right? No, I, I think that's fair. Like if you look, like Sider played nearly 500 minutes so far at five on five with Sherrod, they have like a 40 percent high danger chance yeah. share and like 43% expected goal share. I don't, in an ideal world, like regardless of who Mo Sider is playing with, like it could literally be you or I, that should not be his, his numbers, right? So I think he's right. clearly like not blameless here in this. I think if he had played better, those results would have been at least yeah. a, bit, a bit more. Now, I don't think they would have been what they are in the 300 or so minutes Sider has played with Wallman because they're, they're like through the roof. They're one of the best defense players in the league. But, you know, watching the game last night against the Oilers, for example, I think it was very like instructive to why I think a guy with Wallman's skill set has allowed um, allowed Sider more freedom, right? There was this play in the first period. They didn't even wind up scoring on the play. Um, but Wallman goes back behind his own net to, to retrieve a puck, and there's a four-checker coming at him. And instead of just panicking and either putting Sider in a tough spot by passing the puck back to him and then sort of just like being like, all right, you take it, or just firing it off the glass the way um, a less skilled defenseman would have done so, he ate the four-checker, threw a backhand pass on the tape to Michael Rasmussen up the ice, and then that allowed Sider to basically sprint up the middle lane, get a good scoring chance out of it. And they didn't score on it, but I think that was like the type of play where that's just something that wasn't really in the range of outcomes for Mo Sider when you're playing with a guy like Ben Sherrod. He doesn't have the skill to be able to facilitate a play like that. I think we think of Mo Sider as a highly skilled player, and he is, and, and he makes beautiful plays with the puck. But I actually kind of like him playing with a partner who can handle some of that breakout ability himself because like what makes most siders so special is his ability to cover huge you know huge regions of ice very quickly with that massive stride yeah. of his right and and so all of a sudden now playing with wallman on the first goal you see he's very aggressive he goes down the wall he keeps the puck in the zone and then they wind up scoring on it like stuff like that that allows him to 
play more freely and not just feel like he has to do everything, I think is a reason why his numbers have been so much better playing with a different partner. I agree. I I think you're spot on with all that. Like I, I was not trying to downplay the, the the fit there. It has been, it's been real for sure. And I think, uh, you know, essentially we were talking Ryan and I and, and our friend Prashant earlier today of like who who is Wallman like because like it's it, he's going to be a free agent this summer and he's obviously someone the Red Wings need to prioritize keeping not just based on the fit with Cider but just based on the impact. Like, you know, one of the names that that's come up is like like a Nick Jensen and obviously that's like a Detroit specific probably uh comparison but um Prashant had another one that I I thought was pretty interesting as we, as we were talking about all of this um and he was saying you know is it a kind of a Matt Grizzlick right and I think that's Wallman has a lot more size than Matt Grizzlick but I, I think that you start to piece together like what does this look like on on winning teams and um I think that was a pretty interesting one I mean a 6-2 Grizzlick is a really interesting player yeah, he's. I mean, you you see it like time and time again. He's so slippery around the blue line as well, right? Like his ability to get the puck in these tight quarters and then basically like make someone miss and get it into a more advantageous position. They had that like two plus minute shift in the offensive zone in the second period um, last night against the Oilers, and and there was a couple times there where they like pat the, the puck made its way to Wallman, and he's like kind of like in that coffin corner up against the wall, and it's like, all right, what are you going to do here? And and instead he makes a smart play, gets it to open yeah. ice, and then allows them to extend it. So he's playing like. Remarkably right. I, I that's a great question that Max has posed. I have no idea what to do with a 27 year old impending UFA who has 109 NHL games under his belt and like 20 of them at this level. You clearly don't want to get wildly carried away with it. But then you watch. You actually. Wa- I don't want me to be a watch the games guy. But then you watch the games and and the skills themselves. Like it doesn't really seem like he's fluking his way into it. I don't think it's no. necessarily. Uh, it's risky to be like, all right, let's just project this for the next six years. But there's clearly a player in there. I don't think this is one of those random like PDO fuel things or a random like, oh, remember when that guy just had 20 good games? Like, I think this is like a legitimate, highly interesting NHL defenseman. Yeah, if you go back to when Steve Eisenman uh, made the trade where Jake Wallman originally came over, uh, Wallman wasn't the centerpiece of that trade. It was the second round pick that they got back uh, in the Nick Letty deal. But Eisenman made a point in his uh, press conference, and it actually might have been Max who asked the question, now they think about it. Um, but he made a point to say, like, they'd been watching Wellman for a while, like back in his Tampa Bay days. So he was aware of him as a player and he's seen the potential in him for some time. And then you also think about, you know, in a cap world, what makes a, a really competitive team? And it's it's really simple. You get great players for as low dollars as possible. And how do you lock up guys for low dollars is you sign them when you think that they're going to be even better later for as long as possible. You lock them in. And that more mostly applies to uh, what people are talking about, you know, young RFAs, we're going to be having those conversations about Cider and Raymond not too long now. Uh, but it's an opportunity here with Jake Wallman where you're like, yeah, you've you've known he's he could be a good player for a while. You brought him out of St. Louis to give him a bigger opportunity on Detroit. And at the first sight of that opportunity, he's you know grabbed it by the horns to the tune of playing on the first pairing with your future number one defenseman or current number one defenseman in both siders. So I, I'm sure there's a lot more that happens internally to evaluate those players. I don't know what the dollar value is going to be. I, I kind of threw a random thought about it for half a second guess out in our, our chat today that Max was talking about of uh, a four by four deal, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Detroit lock him in for a medium to long term deal because they have to start making those kinds of uh, high value moves if they want to have a competitive team and a cap structure in the future. Yeah, Max, what do you think the the runaway is here, or like the level of commitment that they'd be interested in, in tying up, not 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 only financially, but in terms of the depth chart, right? Where you've got a 
hopefully an influx of young defensemen coming in over the next couple of years, and you don't really want to lock down spots. Now, beyond, I guess, Sherrod's contract, which is pretty much unmovable at this point already, and, and Mo Sider being there long-term, there is a lot of space on the depth chart, on the defensive depth chart, or, or minutes to dole out. So it's not like it would necessarily be particularly restrictive, but I think that has to play into it as well in terms of like, all right, do we want to commit to this guy for a legitimate term beyond just, you know, like a one or two year kind of flyer and, and as you go along. Well, that's kind of the thing, right? Because the, that's the strength of their farm system. And, it, you know, obviously Edmondson's knocking on the door, but you also have, you know, a couple of, they, they used second round picks on left shot D like every year, it's 10 years. So you've got Albert Johansson and William Valinder and Shai Buyam all on the, not all those guys are going to hit obviously, but it, it's a organizational position of strength. So, um, if I'm Detroit, though, I, I would want to do exactly what Ryan's talking about and go for that three to four year range because I think you know you're, you're going to be completely comfortable there. And um, you know, I the age range here does not seem like it's you, you need to risk a huge fallback. I, I thought your, your point a second ago about the PDO bender thing made me go look at like, well, what is his PDO? The save percentage has been high, right? I think the save is high, but the shooting percentage isn't unreasonable at all. Yeah, it's like 10 percent shooting percentage and uh, like nine oh seven save percentage, but. Um, what was it, what actually jumped out is that the PDO was crazy low, like the last three years, and I just I wonder if that mm. uh, influences availability at all. But um, if if I'm Jake Wallman, I it's an interesting position to be in because do you want to just sign something short, one or two, and and try to get into free agency at age like 28 um, with a much you know more a firm track record and and think what you could get at that point, or are you a little bit nervous that in one or two years all those left shot D that we just talked about are no longer just knocking on the door and maybe you don't care if you change organizations or whatever, but it's a really interesting spot to be. In. I think, you know, I think if you're Detroit, you're, you're, you'd love that, you know, a three or four year range, but you know, one or two is not bad for either of these sides. It, it just kind of depends how much do you want to kind of bet on yourself? Um, he does strike me as the kind of person who would be willing to bet on himself. So uh, I'm very curious to see how it shakes out. Yeah. It's cool that he hit the gritty and then, took off after that right it's, yes it's, even, yes. it's like it would have been very annoying if it was that one thing then all of a sudden he's like back in the AHL or just off but this is like, what oh. what's crazy about that he apparently hit the gritty previously like that i think that was his second yeah, goal yeah. of the year i think he did it on his first goal i did it no one noticed so when we all asked him about it we were like how long have you been planning this he was like i did it before we were like yeah. oh really the camera cut away i tried it, you had to like hyper zoom on it one there was a twitter user who actually caught it but it's like three frames and it's gone so he, mm -hmm. he got his moment this time I would have loved it if he had hit it the first time, but it was so bad that no one could even tell or decipher that it was the gritty. And then in the meantime, he had perfected it. And then so by the time he got an opportunity again, it was so good that we're like, oh yeah, that's the gritty. Um, that's amazing. But, uh, that, that makes a lot more sense. All right, fellas, um, let's take our break here. And then when we come back, we'll keep chatting about the Red Wings. Uh, looking forward to that. So we'll be back in a minute here. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Your number one spot for Flames coverage can be found on Flames Talk with me, Pat Steinberg. Exclusive interviews, trusted insiders, and the latest news. Listen live weekday afternoons at 4 or stream the Flames Talk podcast on demand. PDO guest with Max Bowman and Ryan Anna. We're talking about the Red Wings. So let's we, let's kind of segue into a bigger picture topic that I want to discuss about the team's performance this year and sort of what to make of it. Because 
Ryan, I think the last time I had you on, it was when the Red Wings had finally placed Jack Brennan on waivers. He cleared, and we were talking about him, but we were also talking about why there was kind of like a cruel irony involved in the fact that the Red Wings, as currently constructed, desperately are missing a player of his particular set of skills. And that has sort of continued in the weeks since, where if you look at for the season, at 5-on-5 in particular, as an offense, they are 23rd in goals. 30th in high danger chances, 30th in expected goals, 29th in shots off the rush. And if you look at their shot chart on, on the aforementioned hockey viz that Max brought up earlier, there's nothing in the middle of the ice. There's nothing around the net. There's nothing in the slots. It's anywhere you think of, all right, we need to get here to get a good look off and have a chance of scoring at 5-on-5. Five five, they simply have had no way of regular with any regularity getting to there. And so I guess that was my question on like, what we make of that because while the team itself has gotten better in terms of their winning more games than they did last year and in the past I think that would be a concerning trend for me because you know you look at a team like let's say the Buffalo Sabres who I think the Red Wings are going to be compared to a lot over the next coming years as like sort of the next wave of the Atlantic division right and the teams that are on the way up and going to try to unseat the already established teams there the Sabres are clearly a flawed team this season but one thing they have going for them is they're showing sort of like the outline of a dominant offensive team where they have these individual performances of guys who are just generating offensive results that the Red Wings haven't really had this season. And so I think that beyond the results or anything like that, I think the way they've gotten to them is a bit concerning for me moving forward that they haven't really shown, at least as a team, that like they have that in their range of outcomes right now. Yeah, let's not uh, mince words here. The Red Wings have a big, big, big talent issue. Within the grand scheme of, you know, how are the Red Wings going to make the playoffs, be in the playoffs consistently, and eventually compete for Stanley Cups, they have a glaring hole, which is unfortunately the most important thing that an NHL team in this era needs, which is elite talent, elite shooting talent, elite scoring talent, elite playmaking talent. Uh, the Red Wings don't have that. Their uh, leading scorer right now is Dylan Larkin with, what, 43 points? Looking at the Buffalo Sabres, Tage Thompson has 68, Tuck has 55, Dalene on defense has 55, Jeff Skinner has 50, and Dylan Cousins has 43. Though I know they're going to be compared against Buffalo, but I just don't see how that's going to be. Uh, they're going to stay in that argument unless they find that scoring from within. Uh, you look at games where the Red Wings lose, uh, but they feel like they play well, and last night against the Oilers is a good example. They felt like for long stretches they played well against a talented Oilers team. The sentiment coming out of the team was, we're just not the kind of team that has uh, a guy that can just fire at home. Uh, yeah, not having Jacob Rada really hurts the Red Wings right now, but I don't think just him solves it. Uh, the, the Red Wings somehow, some way have to find uh, that elite scoring talent, and it's not just to get better now. It's to start building the foundation for a team that's going to compete in the playoffs. You want Connor Bedard? Yeah, that would solve it. There's a lot of other players in this draft that would solve it too. Uh, going back to before the break when you asked you know, why does it feel bleak? It feels bleak because they feel like they're going to land out of range for those guys who might solve it in this upcoming draft. So that's that's Eisman's biggest task. He has to, through, you know, throwing money in unrestricted free agency, through a trade, you know, finding some kind of reclamation project for another from another team, which I don't think is likely. He needs to find that high-end talent because even the Red Wings' best players right now aren't producing like that. Yeah, Max, I, I guess there's this, like, rite of passage in the NHL that we see where before teams that are like built or grant organically from the ground up like the way the red wings are trying to do here they go through these like 
checkpoints along the way, right? And there's typically a stage in there before they can become really good and like legitimate just annual playoff teams that are competing for a Stanley Cup. They generally have a one or two year phase where they're really fun. Like they score a lot of goals. They get into these shootout environments where it's like a track meet back and forth. And you can see the flaws of the team where it's like, ah, they're so young and inexperienced and maybe they need a bit more depth. But the young stars generate these offensive results where they're getting into these 5-4, 6-5, 7-5 games. And you see that, like we saw that with the New Jersey Devils last year. And then the step they took this year, you're seeing that kind of with with the Buffalo Sabres. That's typically a a, a a step along the way, the roadmap towards building a contender that you need to hit. And for whatever reason, it seems like the Red Wings, and, and, and you brought this up in a recent article you wrote about how like there's been uh, a, a level of commitment to like the defensive side of things under Derek Lalonde. And I think that was like a clear, um, a clear thing they wanted to address this year to be more structured and, and to be better defensively, more reliable defensively. But unfortunately, I think in doing so, I wonder if they're limiting their offensive ceiling. Like, like Ryan, you're totally right. That the talent is one thing, but I think it's clear that they're they're trading off a bit of what they could be offensively to kind of play a more reliable or um, a game that has more sort of like long term habits. And I don't know if that's the right way to go about like building a team when you're at the stage the Red Wings are at right now. Were the Devils that fun last year? Oh yeah, they were. They were like. They were losing a lot, but they, they had games where you'd watch and they're like, wow, this offense is incredible. If if Mackenzie Blackwood could make a save, they could do something. Because they scored 2.99 goals a game, but the Red Wings are at 2.98. Like, I don't... Yeah, but I don't know. Hugh, Jack Hughes missed like, the of the year. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. I, I Your point is right. I just... That that one jumped out in my head. But um, your point is right. Like, Derek Alone comes from Tampa Bay. And the lore of Tampa Bay is that they were this super skilled offensive team that had to learn to defend. And then when they did, they became like the best winning machine uh, of basically since the 0506 lockout, right? And so Derek Lalonde comes into Detroit. And what is the lesson that he learned? Well, what really matters is the defending thing. And I think it's a very fair question to ask can you skip the step? Can you skip the step where? You're this run-and-gun team, and you become the defensive winning machine. Can you go right to being the defensive winning machine? Obviously, the Red Wings are not a winning machine of any kind, but like right. you know, assuming that they don't intend to, to go backward defensively as their young guys come in, like can you still get to those overall heights? I don't know the answer to that because I don't know who the who the comp is really. Like I, I one of the teams that always jumps into my mind for like what can a what team that's really good looks like them. There's really two. And and one people treat like it's a huge insult, and one people like uh, the, the Hurricanes and the Islanders. Mm-hmm. The Islanders have, like it or not, like the Islanders have come closer than the Hurricanes have to winning a Stanley Cup as currently constructed. Mm-hmm. Um, but people hate that one, so I guess we can avoid it or whatever. But like you know, I don't know. The Hurricanes are built as a team that um, obviously the analytics love them, but I think that's in large part because defensively they have one of the best blue lines in the league and have for some time. And they have enough up front. They have a lot of depth. They have some. They have a couple stars in, in Aho and in Seshnikov that you know we can debate here how Larkin and Raymond or whatever stack up to that, um, or will stack up to that. But uh, you know, I think there's if the Red Wings are going to do it, I think it's going to be by going that path in their mind more than it is by going the Sabers path, which was previously the Avalanche path, which was previously the Lightning path, and that's a way sexier path. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, like the other thing to consider, sorry, the other thing to consider is 
I, I think Jeff Blash still had a big reputation because he said a lot. You know, he talked about defensive responsibility and managing the puck well. But if you look at the difference, like Derek Lalone is really leaning into this whole puck responsibility thing. If you want like a litmus test or a sample to, to kind of evaluate, look at Tyler Bertuzzi. Tyler Bertuzzi is not, you know, being given the free wheel, do whatever you want out there, be your little ball of chaos, uh, generate scoring yeah. chances, crash the a player. Uh, he's being asked to play a much more def- or a, a responsible game with the puck. And frankly, he, he's been struggling. On balance this year in the games he has played, I, I know rust and injury factors into that, but he struggled to fit into that system where he had a lot more rope, a lot more leeway with uh, with Jeff Blasio. Yeah, like, I, and there's nothing wrong with like building good habits for like, this is the way we need to play and this is when we're going to be a good team, what we're going to need to do. You don't want to get, you know, go too far in the other direction of like, you know, having some sort of playing style where it's like this doesn't really resemble meaningful NHL hockey or just sort of skating around there like it's a game of pickup. But I think letting young players make mistakes and, and kind of tapping into that if you're at the stage where they're at now, which is 22nd in point percentage is the first year really that you're at least thinking about potentially being competitive and caring about winning games, I think it's okay to to kind of take those lumps along the way and fully embrace that sort of young, unbridled enthusiasm of 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 players coming in and just like showing those flashes now we've seen certainly you know last year and, and into this year as well some of the plays that Mo Sider or Lucas Raymond is capable of but I do kind of wonder like at what cost or whether they've sacrificed potential ceiling um, in terms of like just trying to to play the right way right now and I, I don't think it's necessarily it's not mutually exclusive like it's you can kind of have both but um, it's 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 a thing to certainly consider like especially when you watch them because this team should, I think, be more like fun and energetic based on some of the players they have and where they're at in their organizational cycle. And instead they're treating it as like a very serious sort of like fake it till you make it. All right, let's be, let's play like a playoff team, even though we aren't one. Yeah. And I, I think part of that probably comes from the very top, right? Like, you know, the, Steve Weiserman's career has that same narrative, even though, you know, when I asked Brendan Shanahan about that a few months ago, he was like, I think that's kind of a myth. I think Steve was always pretty good at defense, but it, it's like, it, it still has the same narrative, right? Of like you, you're flashy and you're fun and then you're serious in your defense. And, you know, I guess if you live that, it's very possible that you could come to the conclusion of, you know, once you understand defense, then you're good. Nothing else before that really matters. Like, I think that's a, a Steve Eiserman has never said that to me or whatever, but like, would it surprise you if that's what, what the, what's driving like this kind of attitude? Yeah, not, not at all. I mean, especially like the, what the 2019 20 season or whatever not that anyone right. was like this illusion about like oh like this is gonna be a good team but like it was just so bad and so bleak and there were times under blash show where i was like this is really ugly so i do understand that sort of pushing you towards like having a level of competence and respectability around the league um but and it's what he pointed to like when when he fired Blashell, what he said or opted to not renew or whatever whatever the language was like um he said, like, we need to improve our defense. Like, it was the number one thing that he said. And, you know, he goes on, he talks about the power play and, like, that, you know, obviously that needed to get better too. But, like, you see in the way that he talked about it, like, that was what really bugged him. It was the goals against. It was, you know, how many odd man rushes and, all. And, you know, of some of the biggest trades that he's uh, made, like, like, basically in goal. Like, he's trying to get these now goalies because he's sick of giving up so many goals. And, um you know, I, there's a really good conversation to be had over, like, does Lucas Raymond's ceiling actually get lower playing like this or, or not? Like, my feeling would actually be it doesn't. Um, but I, 
because I, I don't think he stops trying like cool stuff or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like it's, you can see him at practice, and obviously most of practice is this structured, whether it's power play or line rushes or or small area stuff or whatever. But like, at the end of the day, like the, the point is, you're learning how to make plays in you know in the hard situations where you can. But I would understand the argument that like if you don't let guys quote unquote like play free, are you robbing them of something? At, and I think that's true at like age 12, but I'm just not sure it's true anymore at age like 20. Yeah, and I think also I would imagine that part of the hope moving forward to to sort of rectify some of that talent imbalance is they've made 40 picks in four years under Steve Eisenman, yeah. including 14 in the top two rounds. And so we've seen some of them already come and make an impact in the NHL, but I think there's probably hope that at least at least a couple of those will come and make a difference. And like I really like what I've seen from Jonathan Bergeron so far this year, and there's certainly like young talent in place, but I don't know. Max, have you done any any reporting or do you have any insight on like that recent news story about Jakob Rana having played his last game with the Detroit Red Wings. Like, do you do you know anything about that? I, I, it's a tough one. It's kind of a delicate thing, right? Yeah. I, I have not had anyone tell me that they think Jacob Rana has played his last game for the Red Wings. Right. Um, leading into what you opened this segment with, right, is this big discrepancy between a Red Wings team that does not score enough goals and a guy who, in my opinion, can score goals with the ease of like a top 10 goal scorer in the mm-hmm. NHL. Ha- has never been a top 10 goal scorer in the NHL, but like just purely in terms of the scoring talent, um, could find himself in those names. Um, and I think that that points toward, well, then what the heck is it, right? And I, I've had plenty of people ask me this in the past uh, month or so. Um, it It's a little, it, it it's obviously very delicate. Yep. Um, what I find interesting is when we asked Derek Wallone questions along these same lines of like, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have a guy like Verona in right now? Or how much do you miss his scoring? Or, hey, have you noticed that he started to score? There's always this little bit of downplay from him that's like it's potential or, you know, he's scoring of late. And, and it there does seem to be this downplay element that makes me wonder if like, I know we're not missing that what the talent is, but like maybe they... Just feel. I, I don't think it can be just that. I don't think he's in the AHL on just that alone. Obviously, there's a um, a broader issue with, or issues at play. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, he is kind of a one dimensional player, and we talk about this identity that they're building. And you know, I, I wonder if if that's part of this as well, or I, th- I think that that's part of this as well. But you know, on the on the big picture of the relationship, like it just seems to be a. Um, I think that's probably where those reports and yeah. not talking points are coming from is more on like the broader relationship here uh, between player and club. And, you know, it would not shock me to see him in, in play for the Red Wings. Again. Like I said, no one's told me that he won't because we've seen guys, the Red Wings have waived, uh, come back and play, but those were different relationships. Dan Kaiser, Jonathan Aaron, those were different relationships um, decidedly than, than what's in play here. Now, if the Red Wings traded three forwards and have two guys get hurt at some point, like, you have to go to Jacob Verona. Like he's the, he's the guy who makes sense. You're going to go to him before you're going to go to some of those guys, but he's obviously lower on the list than his talent would suggest. And that I think you have to conclude that there's something amiss. And, and could that lead to him never playing again? Like that wouldn't shock me either. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not just you thinking that he's one of the best goal scorers in the league, right? Uh, Max. Yeah. He's got 22 goals and 39 games with the Red Wings. Uh, over the past like four years or whatever time for Yona use, literally only Austin Matthews scores five on five goals more frequently than Jacob Brenna does. Now being on the ice and and putting it all together is certainly a different discussion. But I don't know, Matt, uh, Ryan. It's it's 
it's, I'm very curious to see how this is handled. I don't think we're going to get any re resolution between now and the deadline, but if it is true that they're consider either trading them or buying them out this summer, um, I imagine there's going to be a lot of interest, especially if it's following a buyout and you can get them for incredibly cheap. But I don't know. It's 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 such a bummer. Like I, I just I really want to just be watching Echo run a score. And and as I said, the Red Wings desperately need that. Even if it is a one dimension, that one dimension is pretty much exactly what they need. Yeah, you're right. It is a bummer. Um, just to echo what Max said, it, it is complicated, and I do struggle with that report. Uh, you hear a lot of the same things over time. Like that's not a new statement either in terms of what's been kind of uh, uh, mentioned around or even just reading between the lines. Like Eisenman waved the guy uh, who is this, you know, elite goal scorer. So yeah, it's very possible that he doesn't ever play for the Red Wings again. I, I do struggle with the the certainty uh, of that statement that was put out. Uh, necessarily agree that nothing will happen before the deadline. Like the deadline, if a team sees uh, Jacob Verona playing real well in the AHL and they say, hey, we're willing to, with everything going on in the background, any concerns you have with him, uh, that aren't explicitly stated uh, publicly for people. Uh, we're willing to work with that, but we want to see how he does in NHL games. Bring him up, let him play for you a little bit, and then you know we'll see about a trade. I can see that playing out. Uh, yeah, maybe it does end up in a buyout. He could go over to Europe. We've seen that uh, with players like Taxier out of uh, Columbus before. Uh, I I think this is not just complicated and delicate. I think it's fluid. I think it's changing over time. Um, I think all the only things that you can say for certain is is based on you know the actions of Eisenman and what Lalone has stated, which Max brought up, um, where there's there's a disparity between what the fan base feels about Verona and what this team seems to understand and know, which is much different. So uh, it, there's a lot is shrouded in, in mystery here. So uh, it's it's really just to see how this plays out and when. And uh, I couldn't even give you a concrete timeline. I think it's just moving. Yeah, I'll say this. I I don't think a trade happens here because of the extra year yeah, left. No, on. no one's taking on money into next yeah. year. Where the teams that would be interested just aren't going to do so. I don't think. So to me, like I, I I think if I had to guess how this ends, I do think it ends buyout. But I haven't had someone tell me that. So that's just like the difference in like you know the report that was out this week. Like I that's what I think will happen too. But I couldn't report that today. You know what I mean? Yep. And if that you don't think Detroit would retain money. I mean, how much are you going to retain on that? Like at some point, like you're going to retain two and a half plus million. And like at that point, like you're better off buying it out. You know what I mean? Like whatever the return is, like I don't think you're going to get what people hope you're going to get on that. And so the buyout is cheap. Like it's not painful at all. And that's what I think. That's what I think will happen. But I don't, I don't know what will happen. Yeah. The buyout is 1.4 next year and then 1.9 the year after. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's and, and and you're right. Like I think there'd be a lot of teams that are that would be interested at fifty percent for the rest of this season to take a shot on it. I, I don't yes. think tying up two point whatever seven five or whatever it would be for next year. If the Red Wings would even retain on both. That's if the Red Wings retain on both. If they if they're only retaining on one, which is not uncommon, then you're getting five. Like that's even harder to do. Yeah. Okay, we got four or five minutes here and we haven't really talked about Dylan Larkin yet, which I think mm -hmm. might be disappointing to a lot of listeners, but I think you can probably get a lot of Dylan Larkin conversations or speculation on a lot of other shows. But Max, I, while I got you here, what's the latest? Um, and, and does the recent Bull Horvat contract we saw help nudge it in, in either direction at a faster rate than it would have otherwise? That's the tricky part, right? Is is what's the latest? From what I understand, there is no latest. And and I think that that's, the, that's where we're at in this is like, 
I think the Bo Horvat contract should like nudge it. Like it should set a very clear floor because still Narkin's a better player with a better resume than Bo Horvat. If it were an ARB case, that's obviously the case, right? Like, like it's that it should, but you're dealing with willpower here and, and the willpower that CD Weiserman has shown in the past, like makes it hard to like it. I would be really frustrated. I think if I was Dylan Larkin by this, because all the things that are supposed to matter have gone my way. And yet, it doesn't seem like it, that's mattering. And, you know, I don't know how Red Wings fans feel about this. I think that they're pretty deferential to whatever Steve Eiserman does. But I don't think the Red Wings can afford to do this with Dylan Larkin. I, I don't know how on earth you replace Dylan Larkin if you're, if you're you know, the, the difference of what I understand to be, you know, less than a million dollars here. Like, I'm sorry, you're not finding Dylan Larkin at the number that you want anywhere. And I don't know how you can justify let it losing him over that amount of money. I, you know, whatever, wherever it comes in is wherever it comes in. I, I don't, I don't know how to handicap it at this point. Well, what's more, like it should be, seems like it should be close to 9 million, but like wherever it is, like whatever the number is, it's, it's better than having to go find another number one center to me. That's how I look at it. Yeah. I was going to ask you what's more likely 8.71 million per or eight years, 71 million, which comes out to like 8.875. I feel like <laughs> I don't know that, that point that that seven that point seven one that I I'm purely just pulling out a number randomly out of nowhere as no no significance of course I'm, I don't know like I, I I'm with you on that I also don't know how you can statistically justify paying more than nine million per yeah if that's if that's I, the difference yeah but I like I don't think you would need to go over nine million I don't even think you'd necessarily need to get like at some point you're, there is some compromise that happens right but. It, it's just like it's what it seems like is that there's uh, a line in the sand lower than that. So it's what it seems like. And I don't think I'd be willing to hold that line over a difference of however many hundreds of thousand, you know, it, it is. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we got to get out of here. So I'll let you plug some stuff on the way out, Ryan. I'll let you go first and then Max, you follow up after that. Let the listeners know um, where they can check out your work. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so on the Winged Wheel podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, go to wingedwheelpodcast.com. We're on YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Pods, etc. cetera, uh, at Winged Wheel Pod on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me at, at Ryan Hanna WWP on Twitter as well. And I would uh, strongly encourage people to check that stuff out. Those guys do an unbelievable job. Um, they're, they're as good as it gets for, for Red Wings fans out there. Um, I'm at The Athletic, theathletic.com. We would love to uh, have everybody on board if you want to subscribe uh, and you can find me on twitter at at m underscore bolden all right fellas well, this is a blast thank you for taking the time to come chat we'll certainly have you both back on down the road and thank you to all the listeners for listening to the hockey pdo cast streaming on the sportsnet radio network